Good morning and welcome back to the Isle of Faces. Welcome to Scraps and Scrolls. You are here and I thank you for it for the final Winds of Winter preview chapter, Victarion 1. Hello and welcome. I am your jolly green giant, your jack of all glades. As I say, here to take you through one more wins chapter. Am I here to talk to you about the NBA playoffs as well? Well, not officially, but I can't resist. It's all going pretty well for me, it must be said. I only need the Suns to dispatch those dastardly clippers, and then I'm pretty happy of anyone winning. If I had to pick, I suppose I'd pick the Bucks. I love me some Giannis, they are my namesake, they're the most Spursy, but I'd be pretty happy of anyone. It's all going very well. Lots of 5am bedtimes for me lately, but it's all worth it. Bucks were a big win yesterday, let's get another one of the Suns tonight. Do I more and more want to talk to you about the playoffs? Yes, of course I do, but I will resist. The restraints placed on me still hold, but they're weakening. I just want to talk about it more and more, but no, I will keep on the subject for at least a little while longer. I am talking to you from a still sunny England, I'm happy to report. Summer is out and strong once again. Of course, the downside, it is hay fever season. I thought I'd managed to evade it for the year. It is nearly the end of June, but no, it caught me in the end. So if I sound a little bit different today, well, don't blame me. If you want to blame anyone, you must blame the Princess Zelda because she's the one who charges forward, runs through all the flowers and the grass and sends up these great big visible clouds of pollen that I then have to walk through. So if you do have any complaints, send them her way. Other than that, it's solar energy solar energy solar energy all over the place which is going to be very useful for getting us over the finishing line of our wins preview chapters but before we get to that what's been going on lately well last time on scraps and scrolls as you'll know it was fion one up in the north up with stannis up in the cold that was actually i think our longest single chapter preview yet and i have to say the numbers were superb for it so i want to thank everybody for that that was definitely one of my favorites it seems like you agree so that's great hopefully we can continue with that kind of enthusiasm today we are sticking with the same family after all even if it's in quite different circumstances so if you haven't had a look yet go and find that feel episode there's lots of jane pool talk of course we can't resist the jane pool talk bunches of stannis talk tactics what's going to go on in the war betrayal all those kind of things Fion reflection we get to talk about it we get to talk a little bit about asha which is always fun and then about bran at the end as well some creepy raven talk and yes at the beginning i do have a great big chuckle about the bronze james so if you're into that definitely go and check out that episode since then another one for you this past week we do like to spoil you, don't we? It is part three of the 100 questions on the Winds of Winter, questions 21 through 30, with myself and, of course, Emily of the Eerie. We put our heads together again for another 10 questions. This time they included, well, I'll be honest, there is a good hour. <laughs> yeah, that's right. A good hour about what will happen in the Winds prologue chapter. Who will it be? What's the setting? What's going to go down? Long-time listeners will know that's one of my favourite aspects of this book coming up. So that would be why it took an hour to answer that. But other than that, we also have some further Theon talk about whether he's going to be crowned at any point during Winds. We try and figure out the mystery of Loras, what's going on in Dragonstone, is he alive, is he dead, what's happening there. Other prizes that Euron Greyjoy could get by the end of the book, I suggested Valerian Steel Eyepatch. And a whole bunch of other really good questions, so I'm sure you have already, but just in case you haven't, go and have a look at that, see what you think of our answers, and then send in your own. Were we wrong? Were we right? Do you have other suggestions? There's some really good ones for fan suggestions, like I said. Other prizes that Euron could get by the end. POV's most likely to die, that kind of thing. So we always love to hear from you and get that interaction going. 
So please do get in contact, email, tweet, either one of us, we're always happy to hear from you. That is part three, and it's our longest episode yet as well, two hours, 20 minutes. We're only on part three still, still plenty of questions to go. Still a lot to come from the Arl in general. Yes, it is true, Wins is wrapping up in terms of preview chapters. And what comes next? Well, okay, you've still got plenty of Wins questions, like I just said. Scraps and Screens is coming. Emily's Patreon-only episode is coming. More Patreon-only stuff. We're starting to talk about videos and live streams and ever extras like that. It'll all come. I'm not going to give you a time scale right now, because circumstances are actually going to change a little bit here on the aisle new jobs and new stuff like that i won't go into details and bore you with it but you might have to see some adjustments coming in the next few weeks in terms of which days episodes come out and the gaps between them it'll all sort itself out eventually i'm just going to have a little bit less time but it will all get there so don't you worry you keep faith you keep waiting watching your feed the aisle will always appear and i don't have to worry personally because i know how good you are at giving your support and doing doing the downloads and doing the liking and doing the sharing and everything like that and speaking of such it's time to say thank you to everyone of course listening but especially our patrons and out of those patrons especially these people in our upper tiers because they are giving so much not just in terms of their generosity but in support with very very kind messages and compliments and other things like this it really does keep me going and that's even more important in the next coming weeks with these change of circumstances and everything like that so an even bigger thank you than normal and it goes out to screenwriter Catherine van pelt eric f gardner queen Lomas Knight Rider, Survivor of the Yeen Sleepover, Grizzly M, Devora L, Glenn T, Aegon the Sixth, Brandy T, Lord Commander Namian Darklin, KM, Crystal F, Virginia D, and of course, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes. Thank you one, thank you all, that goes for all patrons and all listeners of course. I'm also happy to report we're getting loads of patron questions for the 100 questions episodes and they're always really fun to answer, we give them a little bit of extra focus. And of course I'll keep my tease up that there are extra benefits on the way, I can tell you now footsteps have been made on that path finally, so that's coming. Even if some things must change, some things will stay the same. Okay, I think that's just about everything rounded up, I think we can get to what we're here for, the final Winds of Winter preview chapter. Ironically, it was the one that History of Westeros did first. We've done things in a little bit of a loop here. Let's talk about some Victarian 1, shall we? Let's get to Victarian. So this is a little bit of a weird circumstance because we have gone in this great big loop. Let's think about where we've actually been on our Winds journey. We started, of course, in Marine, on the edge of the Battle of Fire, via both Tyrion and Barristan's chapters, literally on the edge. Well, actually, in terms of the latter two chapters for each of them, we were in the battle. It started. From there, we crossed back over Essos, over the Narrow Sea, to the Vale, to the Gates of the Moon, as we reunited with Elaine slash Sansa. Then we headed south, first to Dawn very, very quickly for Ariane 1, then on to the Stormlands for Ariane 2. We went back across the Narrow Sea for Aya in the Mercy chapter, then down south again, southwest as we could go to the Arbor for the Forsaken slash Aeron 1. Then last week, all the way up to the north for Theon, and now we're back across where we started. Yes, we go right the way from the north, about as far as you can go, back to Marine or just outside of it for 
Victorian. So we've been here, there and everywhere, but it's nice to put this little bow and get back to where we started from. We're going to go back to a place that we really might actually start the Winds of Winter with in terms of this battle, so that's pretty cool as we get back to Slaver's Bay. It's been a great time looking through these chapters. And is Victorian the, the, the big bang to end it all? Well, not quite. I don't think he's really on anyone's top tier. I don't think I've ever met anyone who says, yes, Victorian's my favourite POV, but I'm sure you are out there somewhere. Probably. Just you. There's only one of you. No, no. I'm sure there's a few. And unfortunately, we can't claim that this is the best chapter on offer because it is only a teeny tiny offering this time round. There's a reason History of Westeros did it first, I think. But that doesn't mean it's not useful for our purposes. And it's definitely useful in terms of pumping the blood up and getting us right back to that edge again. Because we are about to enter the Battle of Fire again. We are on the cusp of all these questions about not just what's going to happen in the battle in terms of who lives, who dies, that kind of simple thing. But also who ends up on what side, who betrays who, what happens to the dragons, that's the biggest thing. And then of course we will have Daenerys to add into it at some point, probably a little bit afterwards. So this is important stuff and I think that's another reason why it's quite good to end with it because last time out with Theon we had all the build up again to the Battle of Ice. Now we get the Battle of Fire. We know those are going to be the two big kickoff points. Yes, as we've seen in other preview chapters, there's plenty of other big kickoff points coming for this book but these are the two main ones. They're the ones that dance, built up the most. They're the ones we're most hungry for. So I think it's good that we're finishing with Victorian. I don't think there's going to be that much of a need for an introduction for this chapter, to be honest, because like I say, it's not very long. There isn't a lot to it. And Victorian in general, well, we've kind of figured out who he is as a person, who he is as our character. He didn't feature in dance that heavily. He only had the two chapters and they came towards the end. But they were quite interesting, especially the latter, I think. His second, which was confusingly called Victorian 1, even though it was his second chapter. That was the one where Victorian, he really was not himself. And it's not great to begin with, but after meeting Okoro in his first chapter, after having the whole thing of his hand, that whole magical ritual, we don't know, we still don't really know what happened there. Well, he came out of that pretty loopy. He was saying some weird stuff. He seemed to have fully bought into the idea of gods and their power being with him and him being on an almost ordained mission of some sort, like he couldn't fail. He was going on about the Red God. He was saying that he had two with him now, that he was basically undefeatable. And as you might remember, while they were creeping closer and closer to Marine, gathering up all these ships that they found on the way, Victorian was kind of just delving deeper and deeper into this apparent madness. Even his crew was kind of recognising it. There was a little bit of tension there between him and the crew, which I found one of the more interesting parts of the chapter we will get to touch on that a little bit today there's a little tiny bit of follow-up on that the ironborn they don't like makoro and now their very ironborn captain seems to be in his pocket and that actually culminated in one of the more terrifying disgusting scenes in the book which is saying something about that to remember when victorian captured the ship full of bed slaves and the male ones he just killed outright the female ones well seven of them they were put on a boat and he set the boat alight and then yeah he, he i can't remember the exact wording but i remember him like listening to the screams and he thought it was a wonderful song like it was music to his ears and we really did find a new level to victorian now he called that a sacrifice which just seems to be a theme so present throughout this family theon we talked about last time in front of the tree or maybe being burnt asher had a chapter named the sacrifice now we've got aaron down with euron it seems to just i don't know flow in their veins i suppose but out of all the scenes we've had to do with sacrifice so far that victorian one was probably the most disturbing 
That really was quite the reading experience. It's pretty hard to forget, if I'm honest. And wouldn't you know it? No, he doesn't think about that at all in this chapter. That meant nothing to him, if we're honest. He's already forgotten about that. He's got much bigger things on his mind. Two things, mainly, which is how we're going to split this chapter today. There's two main points. One is filling in the gaps on this battle plan that we already know is happening thanks to reading Tyrion and Barristan's chapter. We've seen it. Not up close still from afar, but we know that the Ironborn do come. They're going to have an effect on the battle. They have a very specific effect on Tyrion. He makes a literal choice because he knows they're there. And we have a, a reaction from Barristan as he realises the same thing over in his part of the battle out in the field. So we know some of the end points, but today we'll be seeing how that begins. That's just the first part of the chapter. The second is a lot closer to the ending of Victorian's dance chapter, which focuses on the horn. Again, I'll remind you, Mokoro, he read the Valerian glyphs that are on the horn. He named it Dragonbinder first off, but he also explained to him that you can't blow this thing yourself. It has to be someone else. You have to master it, and to do that, you have to claim it with blood. And wouldn't you know, that's what Victorian is going to try and do today. Whether that's successful or not, well, that's a question we'll have to get to in the text. So those are things to look for, I think. One, battle plan. Two, what's he doing with the horn? Three, in an overall sense, just what is Victorian's state of mind? What is going on with his hands still? How much of an influence does Mokoro have over him? Some of those are more obvious answers than others. Some are very much still wide open. We've got no idea. We'll have to wait for later in the book. But we do get some clues today. Now, as I said, this is a short one. It is only 1,400 words long. Now, I think we're all guessing that this probably isn't the final version of this chapter. It's pretty unlikely because that would mean it is the shortest ever chapter in A Song of Ice and Fire, I think. I'd have to double check that, but I'm pretty sure there's none shorter than 1400 words. So you would guess that more is going to be added in, more padding or more internal thoughts, or maybe they actually will just be generally longer in terms of plot. We can't say quite yet. So a quicker experience for us today, but there's still lots of gems involved. And I think it's because it's this part of a, a larger conglomerate of chapters focused on Slavers Bay. We already have two Tyrions, we already have two Barristans. We're going to have more, obviously. We're nowhere near finished with this battle just yet. So it doesn't matter quite as much that it is a short chapter. We did talk earlier on in our preview talks about how battle chapters are normally shorter because you have more POVs, the action's going faster, and we already know there's going to be plenty, plenty going on in this battle. So the viewpoint probably will shift quite quickly. There probably will be quite a lot to get done. So definitely don't hold it against Victorian. Of all things to hold against Victorian, of which there are plenty, having a short chapter is not one of them. Now, I could go on and on and on about Victorian, of course, but I don't think I need to as much because actually, out of our different preview POVs, Victorian is one of the more recent ones we've got, which is true for all the Slaver's Bay chapters we've had. Out of Dance's 73 chapters, well, Tyrion's last, that was the 66th. Barristan, as you'll remember, that was the 70th. Victorian's only the 63rd. So it's not like it's been a long, long time since we've seen it. So I don't think I need to remind you as much about all the different themes and the clues we're looking for. Because again, that last chapter of his, quite memorable. That was a good one to discuss. And besides, I think we're hungry to get back into this chapter. Let's talk some battle. Let's talk some dragon binder. Let's talk some whatever the hell is going on aboard this Iron Fleet. Let's get into it then. Let's get to the text. Let's start with our opening line of the day. The noble lady was a tub of a ship, as fat and wallowing as the noble ladies of the Greenlands. So as opening lines go, it's 
pretty underwhelming this time, perhaps the most underwhelming of all the Winds preview chapters. There just isn't much atmosphere, there's no tension in this one, or even a clue of what's really going on. Maybe that fits with Victorian, who is a pretty confusing, empty character in general. All we get is the name of a ship that we actually met back in dance when Victorian first took her, she was one of many. Along with that, there's a little bit of general Ironborn versus mainland thinking, and that's about it. But it turns out that George slash Victorian is playing us the same way the Junkish are about to be played. The noble lady is supposed to be underwhelming, it's supposed to lull you into a false sense of security, because this lady is actually full of Ironborn warriors waiting to spring a nasty surprise, as we did speak about quite a lot when we covered the Battle of Fire chapters, because we know it's about to happen. As you might remember, Victorian is going to send in these captured ships that he's been collecting since Dance. He will use them as either a battering ram or a decoy or both, swarm past the Junkish defence and then swing the battle. It came up in both Tyrion and Barristan's double chapters, and by the end of both of their second chapters, the Ironborn were at the least fighting on the docks, possibly even taking them. The Yunkai were now having to split their fighting force between the water and the city forces led by Barristan. It was the catalyst, if you can remember, that really convinced Tyrion he and the second sons now had to change sides if they wanted to survive while Barristan was almost doing a little dance at realising that he had an extra ally. The truth of that, all the layers still to be unravelled and all the possible futures, well we can come to that later, but today we can see how those initial reactions came to be and as I say if you remember those Barristan and Tyrion chapters you remember it is a really really big deal, it does change everything. So, we've got this hodgepodge fleet of ships of every size and shape, a merchant's fleet and therefore no threat to anyone, theoretically. Although you would think those defending the dock would maybe raise a question of why a fleet with no similarity between each ship would be sailing so boldly into what is clearly about to be a battle area, especially if they're just supposed to be merchants with lots of cargo that they're apparently willing to risk. I'd even be tempted to say that this is evidence of Victorian being stupid, as we know, and looking at things far too simplistically again. But the fact is, he's going up against the Junkish, just about the only people on this earth who might be able to rival him for lack of brain cells. Evidently, the plan does work, but you get the feeling that it definitely shouldn't. Like, they should be thinking, eh, this is suspicious, what are they doing? But obviously not. And if it hadn't worked, Victorian had made it so that the fault could be laid at the feet of one of his remaining captains who he'd just given command of this venture to, Wolf One Ear. And just to remind you, that's the man who originally dragged Makoro out of the ocean. Victorian had some words of wisdom for his captain, as we bear witness to this delegation. He's guessing what the Junkish will be thinking when they first see these cogs appear, and he's thinking forward along the same lines as us. He also predicts that they'll correctly react to the sails and think it odd, but he's banking that upon seeing what kind of ships they are, they'll just let their minds fill in the gaps. They'll assume it is merely traders and fishers coming to their shores. Again, that ignores the question of why a bunch of traders and fishers should be coming in, in such mismatched numbers, but Victorian seems confident. He tells Wolf to wait as long as possible. Then, when you are inches from them, that's when you open the holds and let the Ironborn pour out to cause maximum chaos and carnage like we know they're capable of. He also gives some specifics that we should be aware of. Victorian tells Wolf to kill the slavers. Okay, we've got that. In fact, he actually says to feed them to the sea, just so we can connect with what Euron is up to in the Forsaken. But he also says to free the slaves. He makes a specific point of that, which should jog our memories a bit from his dance chapters. He was more than a little loopy in those chapters, spouting bunches of nonsense about Daenerys and her cause. So far, he's a little more like his usual self in this chapter, but it's part of the same notion. 
free the slaves because they are Danny's people. We're here to prop up Danny and impress her and that kind of thing. It probably figures that this is going to help him get in her good books. Of course, he's still completely unaware that Daenerys is nowhere near Marine and has zero idea of what's going on anyway. That's not the only important order for Mictarian though. Kill slavers, yep. Free slaves, yep. But also take their ships. Don't burn them or cut them loose. Make sure you actually gain some. And why? It's because there is still a return journey to complete and the Iron Fleet is pretty beaten up having come this far. You might remember the maths that we had to do in Dance as Victorian described how half of his fleet was lost along the way, plus usual wear and tear etc. So they need some fresh ones to get themselves back across the world. And this is an important notion to think about, another one that came up in Dance. It comes in two parts actually. Firstly, Victorian still very much intends to get in and out of his prize and then take her back to Westeros. He has no interest in the outcome of Marine or this kingdom that Daenerys was shaping up in Slaver's Bay. He wants to get back home, rub Daenerys in Euron's face, and then, well, we're not really sure what he actually intends to do overall. It could be supporting Danny's claim to the Iron Throne, though I doubt he's really considered that. It could just be taking her back to the Iron Islands. Maybe Makoro is convinced him of something to do with Volantis along the way. To be honest, I maintain he's barely fought that far ahead on any of them. He just wants to annoy his brother and not much else. Point is, he wants to leave, he wants to get out of here, which we all figure will not be the case once he discovers that Daenerys is not here, and we've been through several discussions on exactly how Victorian will get involved in this marine storyline as we wait for Danny and after she comes back as well. We might revisit some of that later. But the more interesting point to me is the feeling of the crew. They do not want to be here, on the other side of the world, in a place and around people that almost defy imagination for them. This is about as opposite to the Iron Islands as you can get, and they've had to go through hell to get here. A months long voyage through strange waters, many of them have been lost already, and don't forget, there is that huge fleet from Volantis on their tail, although I believe Victorian has managed to keep that secret from them so far, can't remember, I'm pretty sure. So, they've done all that, and for what? Only one of them is going to get the Dragon Queen. Meanwhile, they've had to leave their homes, their wives behind, which they probably don't mind that much knowing these guys as we do, but they've also been denied plunder and raiding. They've just been doing sailing and not much else. Sure, they've got to take a little bit when they have captured these hodgepodge ships, but it's definitely not the same as the, the fun, if you want to call it that, that Euron's group has got up to. I think we know which Ironborn faction they'd rather be a part of. They know they've got to do that whole big journey all over again, sail back across the world, and they want to get on with it. And Wolf tells us straight up, home, yes, the lads will like the sound of that, that's what they want to hear. But it makes me think that two things are likely. The Ironborn absolutely will involve themselves in some pillaging and sacking of Marine because they've been denied for so long. They figure they deserve it and because they are Ironborn after all. Maybe they can direct a bit of that to the Yunkish camps if they lose like we're expecting, but I think it'll probably spill over into Marine as well. We talked in Barrison's chapters about how he is not going to like that kind of thing, but he might be powerless to stop it, and that's definitely something to watch. But the other side is, they are also going to be very, very unhappy when they find out Daenerys is not here. They're going to be vexed that they've come all this way for nothing. They're going to be in an even bigger hurry to get home. Victorian is very aware of the dangers about being a captain. Your men can turn against you. He doesn't paper over that fact. He's not completely dismissive of it. Euron discussed a much lighter version of that back in Feast. You've got to keep them happy, especially this far from home. So if anything, that makes it more likely that he lets them indulge in their dark desires within the city to keep them busy for a while, distract them a little bit. But it is something else to keep an eye on if Victorian does linger or wants to go searching for Daenerys or whatever it is. Just how loud the Grumbles can get and how Victorian deals with it, well that's something else to discuss. Does he meet them halfway or does he put the iron boot down? And the possibility of him gaining a dragon will probably influence that quite a bit. 
As we finally get off the first page now, we're sticking with Victorian casting off the noble lady from the Iron Victory. He sends Wolf off with a clap on the shoulder. His crew gives a cheer. Wolf's crew gives a cheer. Everyone is in very much high spirits, mostly because they are ironborn and they're hungry to finally be doing something. And this is the kind of something that they like. Hence the reason Victorian has sent his best fighters off with Wolf, so they can land the hardest, quickest punch with this plan of his. And Victorian being Victorian, He's kind of jealous. He wants to be with them. He wants to be first over the rail and to lose himself in the carnage of it. That's his thing. We know that. We saw it at the Shield Islands. He's a fighter. He's a killer. But this is too important for self-indulgence. He has to stay behind and play an ultimately larger, if less enjoyable, role. So he sates that killer's mentality by thinking back on times gone by instead. He thinks of the first lives that he ended, though unfortunately we get no details of that. He does the same with his first ship, his first lover. I think we know how he ranks those two in terms of importance. But memory isn't enough. He wants to get on, he wants to get involved. He tells us this. A restlessness was in him. A hunger for the dawn and the things that this day would bring. Death or glory, I will drink my fill of both today. There we go, that sounds a little bit more like Dan's Victorian. Though at least this Wins version is admitting death as a possibility. But you see his urge, don't you? You see his urge for action. So if he's feeling it, with his big picture knowledge, then his crew definitely is. That hunger, that restlessness. As always, it comes back to perceived slights and sibling rivalry. Victorian was as loyal as they come to Balon, but he still doesn't think he ever got his due. And he definitely thought the Seastone chair should have been his, ignoring the fact that he he essentially conceded the fight for it almost immediately, and he just likes to blame Euron for things. We know this about him. Euron stole the chair. Euron stole his wife, even though Victorian was the one who killed her. Euron, Euron, Euron. Forever taking up space in Victorian's very roomy skull. So this plan and what's about to happen in Marine, that's going to pay all of that back, goes Victorian's theory. He tells us he literally believes this is his due, this is everything he deserves, and that the world is going to right itself again after he gets through with it. It's actually a little refreshing, uh, a break from all the weird preaching he was doing at the end of Dance. This is much closer to the Victorian we know, the man who just wants to beat his brother. And he figures, this will, this will beat him. He already has the horn, soon he'll have the queen, maybe a dragon as well, both of which Euron really wants. He also thinks his emotional pain of killing his wife is going to be solved because Danny is reportedly hotter. Yep, it's always nice to remind ourselves exactly the type of person we're dealing with in Victorian Greyjoy. Longwater Pike brings the captain out of his private forts to tell us that the three oarsmen Victorian requested have been brought up to the deck. He actually says they await his pleasure, and considering what Victorian has been doing with people for pleasure lately, lest we forget Maester Kerwin or the flaming boat of girls, well that might make us just a bit worried what these three are going to get into. Generally though, we hear oarsmen and we think maybe Victorian is going somewhere. Is he headed off in a rowboat? Is this another part of his larger plan? It definitely doesn't mesh with Victorian's style. Then again, we're also told Victorian wants to see them in his cabin and he wants Makoro present. So immediately, once we hear that name, our minds go back to dance Victorian. Much more likely than a rowboat, we're now expecting to see something weird, something violent, and something believed to be powerful in one way or another, but what is it? Upon reaching the cabin, we have the oarsman described to us. There is one young, one old, and one a third generation bastard, a bastard's bastard, which isn't actually a title that comes up all that much in the story. You'd think it would. Forebodingly, Victorian tells us he has no interest in learning their names. Uh-oh, that's rarely a good sign, is it? What he does know is which ships of his fleet they come from. Sparrowhawk, Spiderkiss, and Lamentation, which if you've been listening to the 100 questions of the Winds of Winter series with myself and Emily of the Eerie, you will know is also the name of the Valerian Steel Sword that once belonged to House Royce. That was one of our choices for Valerian Steel Swords we hope to see in Winds. So that's a nice little connection for us there. 
Whether the other two ship names have any significance, we don't know, but we are told what he has summoned them for when Viterian gives the command, show them the horn. Whoa-oh, yeah, whoa-oh again. As we suspected, this meeting is about something dodgy. We know the history of this horn, we know what it does to those who blow it. We've seen it for ourselves, we've had the aftermath discussed since, and we know this is very much the target of Victorians. Whenever he plans to use it, which for all we know as first time readers could be very very soon, it could be part of this initial attack plan even, we know Makara is also his advisor on this, that they need to find a way to use it without it affecting him. That's what Makara is providing information on supposedly, and we figure hmm, this is probably what we're about to see. So Makaro and the Dusky Woman, they both make their actual first physical appearance of the chapter now, as they present the horn around which so much of our future swirls. The outcome of this battle, sure, but also the future of Marine, the heart and soul of Daenerys as a character, that absolute carnage that either Victarion or Euron could unleash if it works, and therefore the safety of the entire Seven Kingdoms and all future storylines within. Yes, this horn on its own is that important. This time round, we're reminded of the thing's sheer physical size. Like we've said, we figure the horn to dominate much of the wind's storyline. It'll be the focus of a lot of people, whether it turns out to be legitimate or not. So, best to make it look worthy then. Even if we've had similar discussions before about horns that look the part and horns that don't, and which of those are the more valuable in terms of the horn of Jorman, you might remember. Victarion is stroking a thing like a lover. It is most definitely his focus, his obsession. And he focuses on the size as well, insisting that the dragon it came from must have been bigger than even Balerion the Black Dread, the biggest dragon we've ever been made aware of. Oh, I don't know about all that. That sounds like Victarion hyperbole to me. And I doubt he has any knowledge whatsoever on the size of Balerion or any other historical dragon. And I don't know about you, but I never actually picture this thing as if it were part of an actual dragon body at some point. I'm not sure why, but that's just never occurred to me. I wonder if it's different for you. But anyway, Victarion now reminds both the oarsmen and us of what this thing is capable of as he brings up the King's Moot and Euron's Mute. The boy, the youngest of these three oarsmen, perhaps catching on to what might be about to go down, remembers that that hornblower died. Oh yes, he sure did, Victarion confirms. And then some. Blistered lips, bleeding tattoos, and ultimately they discovered burned out lungs. Who knows what this thing does in relation to dragons, but it sure as hell does something to humans. Therefore, the oarsmen, they name it as cursed. Victarion says, well, duh, totally. And they likely start to get a lot more worried about what they're doing here. And probably realising, yes, you haven't been invited to dine with the captain, unfortunately. Before that's confirmed though, Victorian has another little private moment as he begins again to stroke the thing. He's admiring the gold bands, the glyphs apparently sing to him. Yes, we're now much, much closer to the completely delusional Victorian that we had in dance. He is most certainly still not all there. In fact, he is so smitten that he is nearly tempted to sound the thing himself, despite the descriptions he himself just gave. We've got to wonder if this is a mark of Victarion's lost mind, is it part of the spell that Mokoro maybe holds over him, or does the horn have some kind of siren song element in its magic? It very well could be a combination of all three. While he caresses away, Victarion does some more self-congratulating. He has this quote, Euron was a fool to give me this. It is a precious thing and powerful. With this, I'll win the sea stone chair and then the iron throne. With this, I'll win the world. So we finally do get some indication of future Victorian plans. Or perhaps plans is too kind. I don't think he's anywhere actually near planning anything. Just aims or wants. That's more correct. And quite vague aims and wants as well. 
and yet you still get the sense he would only go after these things because he knows Euron wants them, because he feels he could get one over on him. But that's enough crooning, he decides it's time to get on with it, and he tells the oarsman straight. Clagorn, Euron's man, Euron's hornblower, died when he blew this thing despite his overwhelming strength. The three oarsmen, correctly, point out that that means they would be likely to die as well. Victorian, in his classic style, is pretty blunt about it. Yes, he says that's true. It is pretty likely, but ultimately, you don't matter, and I do. I don't even know your names. I don't care if you die, and I definitely don't if it works and one of those dragons over there hears you and becomes mine. That is a price I am willing to pay, just to let you know. The Iron Captain, probably considering himself in the upper echelon of caring people, offers a deal to these three. Before he does that, he does quickly think about punishing the youngest of the oarsmen, the 20-year-old, because he speaks before spoken to, but he decides, nah, the kid's going to die soon anyway, so that can be his punishment. But this deal, that he apparently thinks they should be happy for, is that each of them will only have to blow the horn once. Clagorn, yeah, Clagorn, maybe your name needs to rhyme with the word horn, he blew it three times. So it's unknown if it takes just one to be lethal, or if you need all three, or two, I suppose. But these guys, these three, they're about to find out. Victorian's argument of why this is a good thing is also pretty funny. He says, look guys, you're going to die anyway. We're about to sail into battle against an unknown enemy. Who knows what could happen? Well, he actually tells them various ways that they could meet their end on the battlefield. He gives examples. So much so for the faith in that plan from a few pages ago, eh? He says, look, you can blow a horn and maybe die, or you can go to a battle and also maybe die. I guess the first option is at least more convenient for them, not so much effort. Perhaps even Victorian knows this sounds a bit rubbish, so he sprinkles some sugar on the offer. Survive the battle, and you just survive the battle, that's it. But survive the horn, and afterwards you can have freedom, wives, a ship, even a bit of land. I like that, he just says a bit of land. He's quite the salesman as Victorian. The three likely know these extras are rubbish and unlikely to ever come to them, but Victorian's last is what intrigues them. He says men will know their names, and this part can actually be a little bit weepy, a bit heartfelt. These three men, at different stages of life, and from assumedly slightly different situations, they all have something in common. They come from the low rung. They are one of the masses, they're thralls. They've known for an age that they're sailing towards a battle. Even if it's not this one that gets them, there's only so many roads a thrall of the Iron Fleet can actually travel. They know freedom, or security, or wives, or love. They're simply not options for them. They'll get used up, and they'll die. The best they can hope for, in the same vein as so many green boys elsewhere in the story, is to be remembered in some way. It's that living on in a song idea. So that's the thing that actually gets them interested in this. The possibility of this life of thraldom meaning something. That's what gets them across the line. Especially in terms of Victorian, their captain, the man they serve. He might even deign to learn their name. The bastard's bastard, after what we're assuming is a lifetime of being told he's worthless, considers this enough to risk it for, to risk his whole life for, and he agrees to blow the horn. Then the boy, and also the eldest, they agree too. So yeah, we have some sniffles that this is how they value their life. They're willing to do this just for the possibility that their captain will learn their names. Of course, what makes it worse is Victorian absolutely not caring about them, as he privately confirms for us in the next paragraph. Sure, if you want to think I'm going to even bother to learn your name, person I consider to be another species from me, then think that. It just makes it all smoother. Even if you'd said no, we would have forced you anyway, but it's not come to that, has it? We get the easy option. Victorian doesn't have to waste some guards on beating these guys down. They're going to come to it willingly. And for all we know, maybe that matters in the horn's magic. Maybe you do have to be willing. Victorian's as clueless as we are in that regard, but it could be something that Makoro suggested. Either way, he relays how this is all going to work. He's got more than one plan set up, apparently. They will join him aboard the Iron Victory. 
and there they will take their turns in blowing the horn. The boy, he will get to go first because he's the youngest. It's the ultimate short straw. And Victarion encourages him to give it his all. If you're going to be a sacrifice for me, you might as well go full tilt and give it your all. Don't worry, I will really remember your name. He actually gets a little bit motivational at this point, a bit over the top. He even includes a jab at the monkeys on the Isle of Cedars, all those hated monkeys. Though at the end, he still winds up with the bottom line. You give it your all, and then you pass it along to the next guy. Your usefulness will be an end. You'll die or you won't, and I hopefully get my dragon, I will care about you the same either way. Yeah, super boss Victarion, he allows the free thralls one touch of the horn that will decide their fate before dismissing them. Mokoro also leaves, though Victarion notes that he won't allow the priest to actually take the horn with him. Our naturally suspicious minds have to wonder if there's something in that. Is Mokoro intending to steal the horn away? It seems possible, but it'd be kind of pointless right now you'd think. He has nowhere to go just yet, and assumedly he wants it blown first, unless there's some other secret magic he intends to work on it. What Makoro truly wants and plans for Victarion is still such a mystery for us considering his actions, what the cursed hand might mean, and what the wants of the Red Priests are in general. This could all still be a ruse just to get him to Marine and Daenerys. Maybe he means to actually deliver the horn to her or keep it for his bosses. Certainly, we can't be surprised if that ends up as an option, given the ending of this chapter that we get to now. Mokoro offers to bleed Victarion again, like we saw back in his Janus chapters. Perhaps this is to do with weakening him again, or to keep his curse up. The possibility of him having influence or control might stem from whatever he's doing with the hand. But either way, he's turned down right now. Victarion opts for the Dusky Woman instead, just to give us a reminder that she's about, she sees all, so we can feed those theories of what she might be up to as well. And maybe this stymies Mokoro's plan, but maybe not. I doubt it. I doubt it completely curtails him, either way. But in the meantime, Victarion tells him to go back to his fires and have another look, and then to tell Victarion what he sees, which leads to our closing line. Mokoro's dark eyes seem to shine. I see dragons. Yes, of course, it has to end with dragons. That's the world they are about to enter. Even if Danny and Drogon aren't in right now, the other two are, and besides, this is a situation and place that has been forged by this new era of the dragon. Finally, after starting this mission midway through Feast, the Ironborn storyline will begin interacting with that which was furthest from them geographically as it smashes into the Marine storyline. A Marine with, yes, recently escaped dragons, no less. So it's not surprising. What we can debate is whether this will remain the end of the chapter. I would guess no. Either that or we'll be starting off a lot earlier, but for our purposes today, it is our end. So it makes sense that George not only wants to leave us that little connector into the world we're entering, but he's also summing up what it is everybody wants. What this chapter is really about. The horn's purpose. The thing we've just been concentrating on is to take a dragon. Victarion wants a dragon. Euron wants a dragon. Daenerys obviously wants to keep her dragons. And again, Makoro is someone we must not forget. He wants a dragon. For his bosses back in Volantis? For Victarion, as he claims? For safekeeping for Daenerys. It's very hard to say, but I think George is telling us here, at the end, this mysteriously powerful man is definitely hungry. He's motivated. Whatever his intentions are, with whomever he's really aligned, his path most definitely involves dragons. Fiery power. And they are now ever closer. Just around the corner is deadly battle. Sure, we've got to do that first. But also, it's finally seeing the horn at work. Perhaps a dragon being taken. That's a prospect that should really send chills down our spine. It's a huge turning point in the plot of this area. And really, the whole world. So we started the chapter with a battle plan. A very interesting one. We sure have dove deep into the Battle of Fire before now. There is a lot to consider. But surely, ultimately, that one battle does pale to the potential of the horn and what it can do to these dragons. 
like we said earlier, that's the real chilling thing. That's the game changer that won't just change this one battle and the fate of this one expansive area, not just Marine, but the surrounding, not just Slaver's Bay, but the surrounding. And then we know that's going to stretch across Essos and eventually we're assuming it's going to get back, it's going to have an effect on Westeros and everyone else that we know. That could potentially all be traced back to this horn, to these free blasts that we're going to get in the next whoever's chapter. I'm not sure whose POV will actually get to see slash hear that in but it could be the thing the changing finally of something that's not happened on this earth for hundreds hundreds of years as far as we know so the effect that that could have is almost too big to think about now okay yes that is unfortunately already the end to the text but we've still got plenty to talk about so don't go away just yet I want to talk a little bit about, yes, the horn, yes, the battle, but also what we're seeing from Victorian, what his fate might be, how he's going to interact with this huge cast of characters he's about to smash into, we assume, depending on who lives and dies. So let's just have a little bit of a think, shall we? Let's talk about the horn first, because I do feel it's kind of the main focus of this chapter, as it was at the end of Victorian's last dance. I think, yes, as we've just said, might be the focus of this entire battle and that's a battle with many many things going on so let's keep our focus there just for now firstly and probably most importantly do we think this will actually work do we think the dragon binder will do as is said on the tin will it bring the dragons over either both or one will victorian gain control over them will it descend them into a frenzy start burning everyone will he be able to ride one or will he just be able to influence them somehow or just keep them from burning him or will it not work at all that's certainly possible because we do have reasons to be questioning the horn and its advertised powers we still don't really know where it came from we know the claims we know what euron's saying about valeria but you might remember from the forsaken chapter we talked about euron how he captured pirate pre and his warlocks and we said well hey maybe it came from them because they were out for vengeance for daenerys maybe this is how they were going to do it that doesn't maybe mean it's still not from valeria maybe it's just that they got it from there instead of euron but if we can question that we can question anything can't we and the other thing we have to wonder is we have seen fake horns and fake power imagery before that's come up a lot with stannis storyline we saw the great big parent horn of Joramon be burned by Melisandre when she was burning Mance now we know that's not the real one and we've had discussions before about don't look for the glitz and glamour sometimes the real thing doesn't look doesn't have all the whistles and bells on it like the cracked horn that Sam's actually carrying south which we assume to actually be the real horn of Joramon so is it the same kind of thing here is there a real dragon binder out there that isn't apparently as massive as Victorian describes and doesn't have all the glyphs on or is it the reverse in this case actually yes this is the real thing i even wonder if that's an example of the difference between the northern themes and the targaryen themes the targaryen power is a lot more obvious it's fiery it's huge massive dragons they've been the family on the main stage for 300 years they've got big characters obviously so maybe their horn of power, the one related to them anyway, is the more ostentatious one, where the Northerners, generally, not all of them, they've still got big characters and big personalities and stuff like that, but generally we think of that as the more reserved, more quiet, less obvious type of power, that kind of storyline anyway. So that might fit that one horn actually is the one that looks like it's supposed to, and one is not, like we've seen again so far. I suppose one difference is, uh, or something we can throw out straight away, is maybe it won't do as advertised, but it's not going to do 
nothing. It's definitely going to do something because we've already seen it do that at the King's Moot. We've had the description through different POVs now of when it sounded and the effect it had, the weird kind of destabilization it had. Everyone had to take note. It was insisting, it was thrusting itself into your brain, into your ears. You had to listen and it was like nothing else anyone had ever heard. So assumedly, as long as this is the same one and it's not some kind of weird copy that you're on out of a 3D printer or something, we're going to see something similar. And just imagine that, that's a scene to picture, isn't it? having that across a whole battle it was eerie enough when we saw the king's moot and all the ironborn captains kind of really had to stop and i mean we can argue about whether that made them kind of under your own sway or more persuadable or something like that was there actually some kind of magic at work there or was it just Euron's saying hey look at all these trinkets and things i can give you that's another discussion but let's say it is the first one let's say the horn can actually make people listen to you or more vulnerable to that or whatever it is Imagine if there is this massive chaotic battle going on, absolute carnage, then the horn sounds and everyone just kind of stops for a moment and listens, or maybe it drives them even further into frenzy, maybe it makes the chaos even worse. Whichever one, I think they would both be pretty eerie and pretty cool to read, so we are looking forward to that. But while we know, or we at least have evidence of what this horn can do to humans, that's not really what we're here for, is it? Viterra is not here to blow the horn and get a cool scene from this battle between men. He's looking at the two dragons. And again, that most important question of whether he can gain one or two and in what fashion. And unfortunately, we can do nothing other than guess, can we? We just don't know. Now, in that final Daenerys chapter of A Dance with Dragons, we had a little bit of a talk about the use of horns and who needed one and who didn't. I was very much of the hope that Daenerys didn't need one. I didn't want her to have that. I wanted her to kind of do it the, the natural way, the proper way, if you like. I think that's what we mainly expect and agree that Daenerys doesn't need a horn herself. She's got like the, the inside track, but maybe the horn allows the other people, the non-Targaryens to catch up. Was that why they were made in ancient Valeria in the first place? I mean, that's a, that's a winding road. We could probably go a little bit too far down into the history of these horns and their actual purposes back in the old days and all that kind of thing. That's a wide open field for us still. But I do think it's interesting that, I think we pointed this out in that Daenerys chapter, that we've never had any evidence of the Targaryens that came to Westeros bring any horns with them. So they obviously didn't need them or they didn't require them, or maybe they knew that the price was too high, that they did something else, like, yeah, okay, you can gain a dragon, but it costs you this, or it does this to other people, or obviously the more immediate of whoever blows it dies, as we're probably expecting to see, and we have seen with the King's Moot. So I'm wondering if they knew something we don't know, if we're about to find that out with Victorian. That seems quite possible, because it is Victorian. We're expecting him to trip over his own feet, so to speak. Now the other winding path we could go down for probably half an hour or more is what will actually happen if it does work as it's supposed to. Victorian blows the horn, well not Victorian himself, but he gets one of his free falls to blow the horn and let's just say it works perfectly. Let's just say he does gain both or even one. Then what happens? Well, we're not going to go too far into that because we did actually at the end of A Dance with Dragons. So if you want more of that discussion, you can go back to one of those episodes, one of the final ones, one of the final scraps and scrolls for that book. But I think we all know it's not good news in general. At first, for our purposes, maybe because we are assuming he's going to team with Barristan, he's going to team with Marine, and okay, we wouldn't actually mind Yunkai being burnt by these dragons, they kind of do deserve it. That might already be happening, but it's probably going to be in the form of chaos, probably the Marine's forces will get burned as well, so maybe Victorian can clean that up at the beginning, he can force them onto the Yunkish only, that's okay, but then after he owns a dragon, the world should tremble. If there's anyone you really, really don't want having a dragon, Victorian, he's near 
near the top of the list. Like we said back in the Forsaken, Neuron, he might be at the very top, but Victarion's not too far below. So after that, once he discovers that Daenerys is not with them, does he use a dragon to go sailing over the Dothraki Sea to go looking? We've discussed that possibility. Does he say, well, I don't have Daenerys, but I've got a dragon. That'll do. Let's go home. We don't think so. But again, we discussed all that back in Dance Dragon, so I'm not going to repeat myself for you there. One thing I do think is cool, just while we're talking about the blowing of this horn, he has said we're going to blow it three times, one from each of these fools. I just like the comparison because... The other place we commonly hear a horn is up on the wall, up with the Night's Watch, and they also have three different levels of blowing it. Whenever that happens, they all freeze. It happened right at the end of the Dance of Dragons again. They all freeze to hear that it's always an eerie moment. So I think we can get a similar thing, just another eerie moment on this battlefield. We're looking forward to it. So we've got possibilities. We've got dragons coming to Victorian side. We've got possible influences over the men fighting the battle. The other possibility of it not really doing anything, that's the most unlikely to happen, I think. But either way, Victorian will still have a battle to fight and we still generally expect him to win in some version because we expect Marine to win in general because that would kind of make sense for Danny coming back. Now, we did say, again, winning is really probably not the word to use. It really shouldn't be used in any war, real world or in book. But in this case, especially not because it's going to be very, very bloody either way. Even if Barristan's still standing in the end, even if the City of Marine technically still stands, it's not going to be pretty. Daenerys is going to come back to an absolute bloodbath. Many, many of her own side will have died. And that's even if Victorian is, you know, a boy scout. If he gains the dragons, only puts them against the Yunkish, and then says, here I am, I've saved you, but I'm being well behaved. I think we all know that's not going to happen. As we've already discussed in this chapter, the possibility for the sacking of Marine and letting his ironborn blow some steam off, so to speak. That is very, very real. And what's Barristan going to be able to do, especially if Victorian does have a dragon? That's not even talking about all the problems already going on in the Marine with Skahaz and everything like that. We've saved that for Barristan's chapters. We don't need to go into that now. But basically, it's not going to be pretty, is it? And the Ironborn, Victorian, they make ugly things even uglier. So we'll look for that. Now, an even bigger question mark, both for the blowing of the horn and going forward in general, is Mokoro. What is Mokoro doing? We just don't know, and I'm obsessed with finding out. Is he going to do something here at the beginning? Is this all a trick where, okay, he wants the horn, but he really doesn't want Victorian to get to it, so he's allowed him to get it as close as, then he's either going to steal it or use it himself. Has he done something to the fool so that he actually gains control of the dragons, not Victorian? That's possible. Again, I'm very much just summarising for you here we went much deeper on all of these aspects back in scraps and scrolls but the question of makaro and the red priests in general their overall plans for daenerys what they want out of her is it just directed to valantis are they going to actually take her back to westeros and get the iron throne all those kind of things we're still completely clueless about so in this specific instance we have to think about what is it makaro actually wants because he and the red priests they say they're pro daenerys now we can have an argument on whether that actually means pro-Daenerys or is it just their version because Victorian also thinks he's pro-Daenerys but we obviously know that's not the case or not at least our definition of what that would mean. But for argument's sake in the here and now he's more pro-Daenerys than Victorian is. So assumedly he's not going to want Victorian to get a hold of a dragon at least not permanently because that would weaken Daenerys. He's not going to want Victorian to take Daenerys off to be his bride because that doesn't fit with what the Red Priests want either so he must have something up his sleeve. Now it's entirely possible that everything Victorian is doing is already under Makara's influence because of what he's done with his hand. We've already seen from this chapter and previous that he has some kind of insepid, again, influence over him. 
The crew are aware of it. Victorian is absolutely not. He thinks he's in full control of his senses. Perhaps he is, perhaps he's not. I think we'd probably lean to not. So maybe this is all working out perfectly for Mokoro. Maybe whatever Victorian does with this horn is actually just going to get Mokoro and therefore the Red Priest their own dragon basically via a proxy. And we have the exact same question about what Euron's doing. Is the blowing of the horn actually going to just get them under Euron's influence? I think possibly the creepiest, creepiest thing, the most chilling thing that could happen in this battle, if I'm being honest with you, is if the horn blows and either one or two of the dragons kind of like raise their heads, listen, and then just fly west. Can you imagine if they just stopped, heard the horn, and just zipped right across Essos, right over straight to Euron? I mean, that blows the mind. I doubt it, but what a scene that would be. But anyway, back to Mokoro before I get too distracted. He's definitely interested in this horn as well. He doesn't want to let it go. So again, we have to come back to, is he going to steal it? Does he even need to steal it? Or does he have this influence over Victorian? And then afterwards, what comes afterwards? Does he use Victorian and then get rid of him now that he's actually got to Daenerys where he wants to be? Does he continue to act through him? And then we've got the larger questions again of what's happening with Volantis. This Volantis fleet that's behind them, some people have guessed that they'll arrive. We think they're going to be the big enemy. They actually arrive and go, nope, we've had our slave revolt. We're on Team Daenerys. That would actually make quite a lot of sense because I don't know how they're going to survive this attack because remember the insane numbers this fleet has that's coming for them. So again, we could wind up with the survivors of Marine, the Ironborn plus Volantis, Daenerys coming back, maybe of all the Dothraki as well, and just the insanity of that size of army. So it's all very, very interesting. So that was a burning question for us at the end of Victorian's dance arc, that weird chapter with the burning hand and the visions that Makoro has had. What's going on with the arm in general? Is that just going to kill Victorian soon anyway, so he's not a problem? What kind of magic is at play here? So, so many questions and no answers today, but very, very interesting. I think we said at the time, no, Victorian's not anyone's favourite, but it was a great cliffhanger at the end of dance. It's very, very interesting chapter here. So there's so much to see. I think there are comparisons maybe to be made between Makaro and Victorian. Like we just said, they're both kind of obsessed with the horn. One of them is just a lot more cooler about it. Victorian, he's not playing cool at all. He's not hiding it. We've said in this chapter, he's like stroking it. You could almost see him kissing it, couldn't you? He's obsessed with it. He doesn't want anyone else to touch it. He wants to keep it to himself as long as possible. And Makaro might have that same draw, but at least he's a bit more chill. That raises questions of if Makaro does steal the horn, like how crazy does Victorian get then? How does his obsession work then? The language really is like he, he loves this thing. And that's obvious because he thinks of what it can bring him. We've obviously got to wonder if that's a, a setup for the fall. Maybe for Victorian, maybe for both of them in that they're too obsessed. In that they're too bought in into the symbols of power and not actually earning it themselves. Again, we talk about the stuff of Melisandre and Lightbringer and stuff like that looking in the wrong places. Is Victorian being corrupted by this horn, this thing of dark magic? Well, it certainly seems it because, again, he did take on a major change. The corruption, that's definitely a talk of him as well because of this firearm, which we haven't even discussed of, like, can it do other things? We've seen him back in dance lift that one guy bodily into the air. Is Victorian going to get into this battle and go Danny Rand on all of them, Iron Fist, and just start punching his way through the Yunkai? We don't know, but we have to ask, don't we? There's just so many things to think about. But let, let me stay on track. This corruption, this obsession with the horn, is that what will trip him up? Is he going to be too concentrated on that? I think we are expecting that Victorian trip to come at some point, and that does seem like it would fit. Him thinking that he's finally getting his own due, that he's finally getting something Euron doesn't have, and in some way that being his downfall. I think we're all expecting that. Okay, my mind is now already switching over to the battle, I can't help it. So let's talk about the actual battle itself, because yeah, dragons, yeah, 
horn but they'll be coming a little bit later there is still a real battle to be fought like we've seen in Tyrion chapters like we've seen in Barristan chapters and it's incredibly exciting this is why we want to end with this chapter because it really does deliver us on the brink we think this is probably going to come first before the battle of ice I think this is going to be the big opening of the book in general which is obviously very very different from what we've had before but we're really really excited for it and we're not the only ones victorian we know he's a man who likes a fight okay he's going to hold himself back at the beginning so that this horn blowing can be done but he also he wants to get involved of course he does he's victorian he's the reaver he's the iron captain fighting is his deal of all the ironborn we've met of all the grey joys his pov we've had he is the biggest warrior that's the biggest part of him so there's absolutely no way he's not getting involved in this the biggest battle that he and maybe we are likely to see we already saw it in the text if it was up to him he'd be there on the front line he'd be first out of this uh, boat trick that he's playing he actually resents having to hold back because he's more important he's got these other things to do so the ironborn they're going to get involved they are going to rush over after they've played this little trick of theirs they're going to throw themselves into it he has given this command of kill the slavers free the slaves the unfortunate part of this is who is which in this situation especially with the yunkish so unfortunately i don't think the ironborn are going to be too hesitant in trying to work out the answer to that they're just going to do some killing and as we said the big question is do they stop with the yunkish yes we do expect them to help out marine but then when that's done at the end of the day victorian still wants something that barristan and the city of marine in general really really don't want and that's him taking daenerys at some point he will learn or he'll be told at least that daenerys is not in the city do we think victorian just says oh okay and accepts that no he's probably gonna bust his way in and demand to see so he might end up fighting against barrison's forces and getting in again there comes the sacking idea this is a city that is easily collapsible on its own it doesn't need a sacking it can do that itself to be honest with you and then what happens with all that how does that all end up at what point does he finally accept no she's not there and then of course after that we've got the questions of what does he do then does he go looking does he wait and it all becomes very murky again but even before that we're going to have this great great mix of characters we discussed it a little bit in the Tyrion and Barristan chapters think of all the different people that are about to be smushed together everyone that Tyrion's got with him in terms of the second sons we think we're getting Dario back in a minute. Barristan, obviously. Then Victorian. And Victorian does have a history of some of these people. Barristan Selmy, he fought against the Greyjoys in the rebellion. Same with Jorah Mormon, that's how he earned his fame. As far as we know, they don't have specific personal relations with Victorian, exactly, but still, that might matter. So how does that all work? Who ends up on whose side? And then, don't forget, even after all that, yes, we do still have those massive, massive problems in Marine. The Sons of the Harpy, or Skahaz, the Pale Mare, that is running rampant. And the Ironborn, they do strike me as a people who would probably be not the smartest about that kind of thing, about disease and how it spreads. They're going to be getting into this city, and if they're sacking it, they're going to be kind of looking for a good time, not paying attention to the health and safety rules. This could easily spread all the faster, half decimate them, that kind of thing who knows now i think we're all in agreement that victorian probably does survive the battle it'd be weird if he died at the battle it is possible again for whatever tricks makoro is going to play then he's actually got some fighting to do but i think he survives because he's going to be the big fawn in barristan's side Tyrion's side as well likely it comes back against that idea of they win the battle but do they really win anything they're probably not they're probably just in a different bad situation victorian's a large part of that but as we said in the hundred questions on the winds of winter episodes 
I do expect Victorian to die at some point. So I won't go into that too far because we've already brought it up on those episodes. I know we've got another question about Victorian's death specifically coming up. So I'll save my thoughts on that for now, but he's definitely not looking on the up and up. He might get a peek in a moment of him capturing a dragon and affecting an entire battle. But after that, we expect the downturn. Will it come via Daenerys? Will it come via Euron? Will he try to take control of a dragon and not really realise what he's up against? Or again, he has this rotting, corrupted arm. Maybe that'll do him. Maybe Mokoro's already done it for us. And even if he does, we have further questions of characters affecting other characters. When Daenerys comes back, she's got that same hodgepodge to deal with, including new ones. Mokoro here, perhaps delivering this horn to her, saying, hey, look, I saved your dragons for you, or delivering this volunteer fleet to her. That's a huge, huge discussion to have about the Red Priests, this entire religion giving itself over to Daenerys, how that's going to affect her journey westward. Marwyn is still coming, let's not forget. She's got to figure which cell swords are on her side and which aren't. Tyrion, <laughs> let's not forget Tyrion is still here. There is so much to be getting done in this area of the world. There is so much to read through and some of it will come in Viterian chapters, some in Tyrion, some in Barristan and eventually some in Daenerys. It is exciting, exciting times, even through the eyes of someone as dumb as Victorian. There is lots to look forward to. And there we should probably leave it to us. I mean, we haven't even talked about Dusky Woman, what she could get up to how this all affects the actual people of Marine, whether Victorian's kind of delusion that we saw in the end of that dance chapter, how long does that last? Does he stick to his kill the slavers, free the slaves type thing? How does how does that all work? There's almost too much to go through, to be honest with you. But I think considering this is a six-page chapter, 1,400 words, there's an absolute bunch to get out of it, and it definitely does serve our purposes of really getting our juices flowing once again for the Battle of Fire. And I'm definitely, I'm confident in our decision to wait until the end of our preview chapters to get to it because I do think this is going to be the first big thing I mean there's so many big things to come through for wins in the early days but I think this is the first one the one that's really going to take our breath away after that prologue which I did talk about for an hour recently on our 100 questions episodes so there we go that's Victorian 1 there may be more coming to it wouldn't surprise me at all but there'll definitely be subsequent chapters not long after, whether through his eyes or through Tyrion of Barristan's. We have the battle, we have the horn, we have what's going on with him and Makara itself. Lots and lots to think about. And again, I know I say this every week, but I'm always just so tempted to keep going. I could go on and on and on, but I am aware I'm probably getting repetitive. You're probably tired of listening to me. So we will just leave it there for now. And that is all we have, my fellow green folk, of the Winds of Winter. That's all we know so far. 11 total chapters is it 10 10 11 i've had a blast going through them like some of you i hadn't really given them that much attention to be honest i'd read all of them but most of them only the once and a long time ago now so i've never done too much of a deep dive well this has been really really fun going through them i, I hope you agree it seems like you have you've definitely been getting your comments in and the numbers are really good so that's great I'd like to thank you for coming through this little journey with me. It's great to be able to experience something essentially new with you all for the first time. It's really great discovering all these these cool callbacks to the earlier books and dance normally as well. Also looking forward, it's really great just reacquainting ourselves with certain characters who we haven't seen for so long. Meeting new characters, expanding on old characters, all that good stuff that we really like doing here on the Isle of Faces, on Scraps and Scrolls specifically. A bit more of a, I don't know what to call it, a grounded look sometimes, like a, a man on the street type view. I think that's where we hang our hat and, well, again, that's certainly what you seem to think. That's the common compliment that a lot of you give me and I'm proud for it. That's definitely the way we like to approach such things. 
Now I think what we'll do, because it was a short kind of chapter today, let's give you some extras, shall we? Let's give you some bonus content, because it is the end of the Scraps and Scrolls for now, at least in this format. So I think you've all earned some, some freebies, some extras here. And I think what we'll do is look through very, very quickly all the POVs that we didn't get a preview for, a preview chapter for. We're not going to go too deep on anything, because chances are, you're going to be hearing about them if you haven't already in the 100 questions episodes i think we do cover every pov in one question normally probably three or four so no one's getting left out but we'll very quickly remind you of their situation and what we expect to see them at least early on in wins but before that i'd like to do a little bit of a comparison for you i had this idea the other day and i thought it was pretty cool just to look at how would the other books or let's just stick with one actually how would a dance with dragons as our most recent published book how would that have looked with the wins preview chapters that we've got now i wasn't a reader all the way back when dance was released so i don't know if there were preview chapters released for that book some of you out there can tell me but let's say we got the same number and it was the same basic characters the same early chapters obviously how much of dance would we have learned about compared to obviously now we know the whole story of dance because that can tell us really it can set in our minds how little we still know of wins i did make this point on episode three of the 100 questions episode the other day in that everything we talk about everything we know i know we've got these really far stretching theories but everything that we know is still really really little about wins we only know about the early stuff we do have ideas but we've got no idea how it's actually going to transform later in the book because if you look at a storm of swords and at the beginning there's no way you can look at that beginning and guess how it ends up the same with dance the same with all of them but i think storm and dance are probably the ones that's most true for so let's do a little bit of a comparison for you here and what i mean by that if you're getting a bit confused by what i'm saying is so for instance for Winds of Winter, we have Theon 1. Well, let's say that for Dance, we got Reek 1, which was Theon's first chapter, and that was it. What would that tell us? And what would we, and how can we now look back and see how little that actually told us of the whole plot for Theon? So we're going to go through. We're going to compare each Winds chapter with the Dance chapter that would kind of correspond. So let's start with Theon. Let's say we had that Reek 1 chapter. That was the 12th chapter overall of Dance. We got the reveal of Theon's change, what had been done to him. And then it ended with the hint that Theon would help Ramsay claim fake Aya, claim his bride, which we knew to be Jane Poole. So that would be it in this case. That's what I'm trying to get across to you. If we only had that Reek 1 chapter, that would be all we knew of Theon's actual dance arc, which we knew to be one of the most expansive and brilliant. But there's no way we could have guessed that just from that one Reek chapter. So in the same way, we've got no idea what can happen with Wynne's Theon. Let's look at other examples. So let's say, so for Wynne's, we've got Ariane 1. Okay, Ariane's not in dance, so let's switch it for Quentin. Quentin 1 slash The Merchant's Man. That was the seventh chapter overall. That was the introduction to their adventure, and it ended with the the way they found they'd be going off to Volantis. So actually, it's fairly comparable, a journey going off for this big thing, and that's what Ariane is doing in Winds. We have Ariane 2, which let's compare to Quentin 2, the Windblown. That was the 25th chapter overall. So a little bit of a cheat for our purposes, because we're assuming none of these Winds preview chapters we've got are going to be as late as 25 chapters in, but maybe they will. Who are we to say? That could be true, especially for an Elaine or an Aya, for example. That was us meeting all the different sellsword companies. That was the, the real talk about the start of a war for Slaver's Bay. And again, it ended with another secret mission to help them to get to Marine. So actually, we've already seen half of Quentin's eventual arc there. 
That's probably the most we would get to know, again, if we were taking the Winds of Winter previews and stapling the same format onto Dance. We have Victorian 1 today, which we could compare to Victorian 1 in Dance, but that comes so much later in the book, so it's probably, for our purposes, better to compare it to Asher 1, which was still the 27th chapter overall. That was when Asher was listless, she was against the North, she didn't know what to do, and it ended with the loss of Deepwood Mott. So actually, that one is fairly representative of the rest of Asher's Dance arc, but still, we don't know that much. Barristan 1, you can compare to Barristan 1, although again, that's later, so let's compare it to Daenerys 1, the establishment of Marine, and learning that Drogon has killed children. Okay, we learn a lot there. The same for Daenerys 2, which was the 11th chapter overall, and we talked about the Sons of the Harpin, we had Quaif, we learned that Danny had imprisoned the two dragons, but that's just the beginning of the arc. I hope you can see what I'm getting at here, is that if that's how little we would have known of Dance, then we can assume the same of Wins, in that we just cannot guess where these many stories, as great as they are to have gone through and as great as it is to theorise, we don't know where they're going. Wins is a wide open, massive book, and I just think that makes it really exciting for whenever we do get our hands on this book, because I love the not knowing. I know many of you, you're theorists, and there's so many talented people coming up with these ideas. There's something I don't get into that much because I don't want to know. I want to wait until I find out and read it. That's what's cool for me. And some of you might be the same. So we could go through the rest. We could compare Tyrion 1 to Tyrion 1 in Dance and Tyrion 2 to Tyrion 2 in Dance, which was still only just him on the road with Illyro. Of course, we had no idea that that would lead to capture by Jorah and then slavery and then Marine or any of these things. My point is, I'm probably uh, straggling out too long for you, is that all these wins preview chapters, if they were put onto Dance... Okay, we'd know that Tyrion's being involved with Essos now. We'd know that Fionn's broken. We'd know Danny's having a hard time in Marine, Or that Aya's making steady progress in the House of Black and White. But we wouldn't know, I mean, like a tenth of what Dance has to offer as a book. So that's just the point that I'm making, is that we can enjoy these preview chapters, but there's still so much more to come. It's very, very exciting. But let's have a look at the ones that we haven't been able to talk our way through yet. We have had every hint explored in these preview chapters. Every every stone has been turned and we did find bunches and bunches. We've had loads of talking points, both about what's actually happened in these chapters and, like I say, about what they might mean in the future. But let's have a look at those who George has kept secret. Now, has he kept them secret because he thinks people might not like that uh, that much or this chapter would be not as exciting on the rest or is he keeping it secret because ah no that chapter would give away this and then they might think that it's too good to share i think that's the explanation we normally go with so just to remind you the povs we have that didn't get a preview chapter for the winds of winter just yet which is the majority actually remember they include john asher jamie brienne bran melisandre cersei sam ario and danny i think that's it am i forgetting anyone i don't think i am shame on me if i have let's talk about them very very quickly let's just go through them i'm talking like two minutes in each let's do all the northerners first john snow again this is what i mean i don't think i need to really remind you what the deal is with john or expecting from john or the importance that his particular pov can provide at the beginning i mean it's all chaos around this guy isn't it he's perhaps the biggest question going into the winds of winter of I mean, when do we actually get a John POV? Do we get one in Ghost's Mind? Do we have to wait for his much-expected resurrection? And what point in the book will that be? That could be ages. It could be halfway through. It could be near the end, for all we know. We're expecting not. We're expecting him to come back. And then what form does he come back in? And this is what I mean. I don't need to go into detail of this, because one, we've done it before, probably, in Scraps and Skulls. And two, we're going to go through it on the 100 Questions episodes. But John coming back as a different John, a more possibly feral, a more dark John, 
He's going to have a lot of things to deal with. He might want some vengeance. He's going to have to try and bring the Night's Watch back together because they've probably shattered in some way at East Castle Blackwillow. It's absolute chaos there. You've got the Wildlings, you've got the Queensmen, you've got the ones who betrayed him. Damn you, Bowen Marsh. Have they fled? Has he got to go to the Night Fort to sort them out? Stannis might be coming up to the wall soon if he's been defeated or shunned by the North. He's still got Hard Home to think about. And then obviously the much bigger problem of the others, they're still coming. He still needs to form a defence against them. So we're expecting, one, pretty bad times for John, especially if he does wake up to find that Shireen has been burnt for him or Monster's been burnt for him or whatever it is. That'll absolutely destroy him. He's probably going to have a much bigger reaction to actually having died and come back than show John did. I think we're all expecting that. So pretty, pretty important. What about the woman next to him, Melisandre? I think it's easy to see why we didn't get her as a preview POV because she would give us the best insight into what the hell is happening at Castle Black. Because as I just said, we've got no idea. I think you might remember that five-hour episode we had thinking about John and the many, many, many possibilities of what's going on at Castle Black. Is it all out fighting? Is it them kind of having a standoff inside Castle Black? Did Melisandre make moves before John went down? How does she actually react? Does she save him straight away? Does that come later? What other evil things is she prepared to do? We need to see her reaction to the pink letter. And then going forward past that, past this initial chaos, well, it's difficult to see. I mean, how much influence does she have over John? Does she now buy into him as like the chosen one because he has come back? How much is her faith with Stannis disturbed with his apparent defeat? We assume she's going to be getting even more involved in this defence against the others. But another important thing to remember with her is how much more interaction or explanation do we get about her versus Blood Raven and Bran. She still thinks they're the enemy. The enemy. So does she interact or move against them in any way? That's before Euron possibly gets involved. And then, of course, much later in the book, maybe not even until Dream, but if dragons do start coming north, if Daenerys comes, then who does she go to? then who's her chosen one or does she have multiple chosen ones that would be very interesting and actually one more thing about Melisandre that I'm really keen to learn more about is where she fits into the structure of the Red Priest this is a discussion we've had before because these Red Priests they seem to be here there and everywhere and some are doing their own thing and Melisandre definitely seems to be doing her own thing assumedly we're going to learn more about this religion through Daenerys and that whole storyline that we've just been talking about with Makoro we're probably going to see Benaro again as we come back westward so is Melisandre rogue is she doing her own thing how high up in this religion is she that's very very interesting to learn about then we have Bran, Bran the Man. Again, another one where it's really easy to see why we didn't get a preview chapter because a Bran chapter would just give us way too much information. Perhaps we have already actually seen him in these preview chapters through Theon, through the Ravens. Maybe he's already touching events in the outside world. But we're assuming that next time we catch up with him, because it has been so long, he did dip out halfway through Dance, we're going to be seeing a much, much more powerful Bran as evidenced by the Raven warging. He's going to be a lot further along in his progression. He's going to have been taught a lot more. And that's just in those skills. What about what he's seen since we last saw him? How many times has he gone back into the past? How many ancient memories has he been witness to? Before it was just at Winterfell. Now maybe he's explored other weirwoods. He might have even got to the point where he can just see anything. I think we're all expecting it to still be kind of weirwood tethered. But that doesn't make it any less exciting. There's still plenty to see as we've been pointing out every single time when these trees pops up in scraps and scrolls so some of that we're going to be witness to ourselves in the brand chapters some we're going to just have him remembering having seen and that's just such a treasure trove an opening book that it can't be 
any more exciting for for nerds like us but on top of that i mean that's interesting enough i think if we all got a if we all got a brand chapter brand one is just him explaining all the different visions he's seen we'd be more than happy with that oh that could sustain us for a long long time but there's other actual stuff to be getting on with he's obviously going to have an effect in Fion's plotline in some way maybe the north in general we spoke last week about him maybe even playing a role in the battle of ice if we get a brand chapter that is him showing us that battle Ugh, I mean, that's the stuff of dreams. But even leaving all that behind, there's still stuff to be talking about in the cave. All these dark things he's doing with Hodor. Has he realised what's happened to Jojen? We need the question answering about what's happened to Mira. We've already addressed that on the 100 Questions episodes, but we need to learn the truth. How has she reacted to the Jojen Pace fiasco? Does she even know about it yet? How is she reacting to Bran? Eventually we assume they're going to need to escape, and then we've got the Hodor thing. Will Bran be coming south in this book? There's lots and lots. Plenty of people will argue Bran is the most important character, and they've got good reasoning for those arguments. It's very, very persuasive. So after missing out on Feast and only having a couple of chapters in Dance, I think we're all expecting for Bran to take a big, big step up for wins, personally. Our other POV in the North is Asher, which, in fairness... We don't have too much to talk about because nothing's changed too much. We have seen her in Fionn's chapter. We've already discussed a lot about her reaction to finding Fionn again and what she's having to do about that. She's got her two friends back in Carla Maid and Tristan Botley, so that's cool. We're looking forward to seeing that. But past that, I mean, really, we can't go any further than the battle. Is she going to be involved in some way? We assume she's going to be one of our sets of eyes because there aren't many for this battle so that'll be interesting and she's probably going to be showing us a lot of the pre-stuff the fray stuff and maybe stannis's secret plan as well once that all done could we see the fion latecomer theory come about what will Asher be doing after that will it be her trying to go home and destabilize euron or will Euron be coming north we don't know but we're looking forward to it because we do love asher so much so that's everyone in the north that's enough for a book on its own i think you'll agree let's move south slightly we don't need to go to the Vale. we only have one pov there and we've seen her in sansa so instead let's make our welcome return to the riverlands that central venue that was so prominent especially in the first three books and then again in a slightly different way during feast but not in dance and not so far in winds either the riverlands is one of my favorite areas to cover so i'm very much looking forward to that making a welcome return being super important again and we have two main characters who are actually right next to each other at the moment in Jamie and Brienne. Now again, I've already said on 100 Questions episodes that Brienne might be one of the hardest people for me to really guess at what her future could be in Winds. There's this little bubble, this little barrier that I can't just see through this first bit. We know what's coming immediately. There's going to be this meeting between her and Jamie and Stoneheart. What will happen there? Well, there's many varying theories about a trial by combat or a trial of seven, some new kind of oath-sworn is obviously going to be a really, really key meeting, re-meeting between Catelyn and Jamie. We know how important the last time that was. There's so much that's happened since. There's lots to cover. But after that, I do find it very, very hard to guess. Harder for Brienne. It's quite hard for Jamie as well. But we have, I think, more concrete points that we assume he's going to get to at some point. Whether that be Cersei, whether that be going north, maybe Tyrion as well. Brienne is just harder. I think most people assume she's going to be with Jamie. I could also see her being reattached to Catelyn in some way, like she was before. An oath unfulfilled, perhaps or trying to make up for something maybe that's how she buys jamie's freedom or something like that so i wouldn't be surprised if that happens and perhaps she ends up going north as well i wouldn't that could be totally in the cards we've spoken about stoneheart doing that as well but then again we've also spoke about her end coming in the riverlands especially if aya makes her way back over so that'd be very interesting if brienne hangs around long enough to meet aya we saw those two on the show that was pretty cool so it'd be the same in the books 
but I do think Brian is one of the hardest to guess. So if you've got guesses, do let us know. Jamie, as I said, a little bit easier. We do know this big meeting is coming. He's got things to answer for. He's got demons to face both now and later. There's lots for him to catch up on in King's Landing eventually. But I'm also very interested to see how his leadership growth keeps going. Does that arc continue as it did in Feast or does it stall out now? Is it interrupted by something completely different? Because remember, at the end, he was thinking, how am I going to feed this realm there? My family has burned them to cinders. There's no food. Winter's coming. That snow was coming down right at the end of his arc. So I'd really like to see if he's going to get an actual chance to attempt that, to keep everyone alive and really be a leader because that is a super cool facet of kind of new Jamie. Or is he completely taken off the rails by whatever happens with Stoneheart and Brienne? Or does he now have a fully-fledged rebellion to deal with from Lady Stoneheart and the Brotherhood and what we're expecting from the prologue? Don't worry, I'm not about to spend another hour talking about that. I did that on the 100 Questions episode. But that is going to be a big thing with big repercussions and Jamie could very easily find himself caught up in the ripples and the waves that are coming out of it. We assume there'll be a second Red Wedding of sorts. Whether Jamie is still around for that, that's debatable. I think he will end up leaving the Riverlands pretty soonish. But it'll still be his hard work crumbling around him. Everything he did in Feast to kind of keep the peace and get everyone together, that looks like it's going right down the drain as the theme of vengeance returns in full force. Everyone wronged in the Riverlands before, during Storm and earlier. They get their revenge and again, I expect the small folk will suffer most of all. Of course, this is the Riverlands. There are many, many other facets of this kingdom to look at, especially the Brotherhood that we don't know about. We don't know if there's a split, a, a rip in their lines, if they've got different groups doing different things. We've got the Tully Garrison, we've got the Blackfish. Again, I must resist, I won't talk about him now. <laughs> I've done it enough lately. But there is lots and lots and lots going on, and I think that's one of my key areas, and I think many of you probably agree. I don't know if we get Jamie and Cersei back together in this book, but I could definitely see it. I don't know if that happens in King's Landing, or if all the Lannisters start reuniting over in Cassidy Rock. I think that's very, very possible for that book. So that'll be a whole new area for us to explore, obviously, as well as the rock itself. That'll take up a lot of our attention. That'll be very, very cool. And I could definitely see that happening, because remember, they also have Kevin's death to react to as a family. That will change a lot back home as well. So the list of things to get done both in the Riverlands and in their neighbours, the Westerlands, just keeps growing and growing and growing. There's no way I'm covering them all here, but it's worth thinking about. The Riverlands' other neighbour to the south, the Reach, despite its size, only has one POV in it, that is Sam. He is one of those POVs we've just not seen for so, so long now, not since the end of Feast. And he has bunches going on. We know Euron and Aeron are around the corner. Something big is about to happen in Old Town. We discussed that enough for you in the Forsaken chapter, I won't repeat here. But we assume that Sam is firstly going to have to survive that, and hopefully Gilly and everyone else as well. But then afterwards, what happens? Is he captured? I don't think so. I definitely hope not. That would be terrible to read, but I don't think he is. I think he escapes. He gets on the run. And actually, this is an upcoming episode, in the next episode of 100 Questions on the Winds of Winter, I believe. So I best not give too much away. But I think he does escape, again, hopefully with Gilly, with the majority of his new little party that he's met via Marwyn. And where he goes from there, well, many people are thinking Horn Hill, that he goes home first. That would be pretty cool to see. Hopefully he doesn't cross paths with Randall, because Randall sucks. I don't want to see him anymore. But he's also just majorly, majorly important. We, he has what we think is the Horn of Joraman. He's got Mance's son with him. And he might well have a glass candle and a lot of knowledge about what Marwyn's been up to and what the Citadel is up to as well by that time. So what he needs to do of that, I mean, that's up for debate. Does he head back for the wall soon? Probably not soon, but I'd love it if it does happen in this book because I do want him to get back to John. Maybe that never happens, but I'm definitely crossing my fingers for it. Then again, that's a long old journey across a very, very dangerous land. So I'm not sure how that would happen, the logistics of it. 
but that's what I'm hoping for. Either way, I think we all know Sam is going to be very, very important in this book. Like he is in every book, but even more so this time. He's just surrounded by even bigger events, which is saying something because this guy, he's kind of been through the works already, hasn't he? The Reach will also be a place of change. We know there are friends in the Reach waiting. If Aegon is victorious with his Golden Company, a lot of them are going to want a lot of pieces of the, the Reach for themselves. We expect the Tyrells to be majorly in flux, like we spoke about recently. They will likely lose a lot of their power, maybe all of their power perhaps. So it'll be interesting to see how Sam is caught up in that, especially if Randall is one of these friends in the Reach, which many people have hypothesized and we spoke about in the dance epilogue. So that's definitely a web he can tangle himself into there, even with all these more important missions to be getting on with. So I think Sam, he's going to be one giving us a lot of reveals, a lot of important information. We're going to see some pretty bad but important stuff through his eyes if he does see any of the Old Town attack. We will see the change of leadership in the Reach and what that does to the political landscape. All these newbies suddenly coming in from across the sea, the basic invasion, even if they think they're in the right. And then where it takes him from there. Again, he's another one who the beginning is a lot clearer than the end. You could say that for all of them, but I think it is especially true for Sam. I find it very, very difficult to predict where he might be around the end of Winds of Winter. So I'd love to hear some suggestions on that. Not a million miles away is Aria Hotar, currently heading towards the west of Dawn with Obara Sand and Balon Swan hunting down Gerald Dane Darkstar. Now this time I'm really not going to give too much here because I actually went on Radio Westeros to discuss Area Hotar in the Winds of Winter so I would just be repeating myself. Though what I will say is even though a lot of people consider him the lesser POV or the man at the back of the line, I think there's plenty of interesting things to find in this storyline here. Not just in terms of duels with Darkstar or Ibarra or Balon Swan. All four of these can end up fighting any one of the others pretty easily. I think we could very easily find our way on the way to Starfall. We could be really opening up the Dane storyline that's kind of been there on the periphery since the beginning. That might be super important, might not be important at all. We might get to see Dawn. That would be amazing. I could very much see them interacting with Sam possibly because Ibarra does want to get to Old Town. She hates Old Town. That could mix in well with Euron's storyline there. She's obviously half-sister to Sorella who might be with Sam. And then we assume Ario will also at some point be a window into what's happening in Dawn in general because that is a tinderbox at the moment politically. That's before news of Quentin comes back and Daenerys actually comes west or they even have confirmation of Aegon yet. So that's going to only become more and more violent, more and more urgent. But again, you can go back and listen to Radio Westeros for more thoughts on Area Hotar. For now, let's look to our last location in Westeros. That's King's Landing, and only one POV is there at the moment, that's Cersei. We assume Arianne will be coming along shortly with Aegon, but for now, especially after Kevin's death, there's only one window for us. And I think you're going to agree there's going to be quite a lot happening in King's Landing in this book. For Cersei herself, yes, we have trials to get through first. But I think the biggest storyline is going to be her comeback trail, her revenge tour, if you want to call it that. She has Gregor slash Sir Robert Strong on her arm. We know she's got plenty of people to tick off her list. That could be the High Sparrow. That could be Marjorie, the Tyrells in general. We know Taina Merriweather is coming back. She might find out she's had something to do with her downfall. She's going to find some way to blame Tyrion for everything and take that out on everyone. Bronn, still a very important character. And then there's the people of King's Landing in general. I don't think she's forgotten her walk of shame. And however she might have presented herself in that Kevin chapter, I think we all know this woman is not done. Is it wildfire? Is it something else? 
Those are likely events coming later in the book, but I think we're all expecting a big splash from Cersei. Yes, most definitely. I think perhaps the most intriguing part of her arc for me in Winds is what happens with the Sand Snakes. I'm very, very interested in these two Sand Snakes and what they're going to get up to. Will they take their vengeance upon Tommen and maybe Marcella as well? Because don't forget, Marcella is on her way. So that's going to be a major moment for Cersei, actually getting a child back for once. She's going to want a fair piece of vengeance for that, for what's happened to Marcella as well. But what Nymella and Tyene are going to get up to in terms of their personal vengeance, we know they wanted to act against the children. That would obviously send Cersei over the edge completely. She'd be even worse than she is now in terms of wanting vengeance and violence and all these other things. But they could also be involved in helping Aegon out if he's starting to come towards the capital. They're already in the city. They can open the gate. They can start attacking from the inside. Tyene might be involved in taking down the High Sparrow in some way. We don't know. There's so many possibilities, but that's definitely one I'm looking out for, especially in relation to Cersei. How that is going to affect Cersei, how she's going to bite back. Will Jaime come to the capital? Like we said, mystery. That could easily happen here. Could easily happen later, because the other thing I could see happening with Cersei is her finally leaving King's Landing. This has always been her place in the book. Ever since she got back from the north, she's never left. Will we finally see her flee? Will she see the writing on the wall? She might get some of her vengeance in and then think, okay, I've had my fill. Now Aegon's coming over the walls. We're scarpering the west. We're actually going back to Cassidy Rock finally. It could easily happen. There's so much to get done before that. The reaction to Kevin's death, to Pycelle's death. Her blaming the Tyrells. Tyrells probably blaming her. Reacting to the Golden Company. Reacting to what's happening down in the streets. The mystery of Loras prevails. There is so, so much going on in this city in winds big big changes coming perhaps the biggest ever change maybe even daenerys comes to the city and wins probably not but you never know we live in hope i think we know at least one dragon real or not is coming so that is going to be major 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 look for cersei to be huge in the winds of winter not only leaves one more in fact that is on the other side of the world daenerys herself i don't think we need to talk an over amount about daenerys i think we know where we think she's heading and we've given her more than enough attention previously in scraps and scrolls her first mission is surviving whatever her and Drogon have got themselves mixed into with the Dothraki. Most of us think she's going back to face Dothraki and however it'll happen, she's going to gain either all or some or a lot of the Dothraki. Then comes the return to Marine, that very, very bloody scene that we've already been describing today. She's going to have to try and sort out the carnage there. There'll be punishments. There'll be tears, no doubt. And we'll probably start to see the changed Daenerys that we got a little bit of a hint of at the end of Dance when she finally chose her path of the dragon that was who she was going to be and we very much celebrated that fact and we saw how she arrived at that conclusion why she arrived at that conclusion and it was fair enough especially considering everything that happened in marine so she's going to go back she's going to see again the battle she's got to meet vitarian she's got to meet Tyrion. jaw will be back then there's marwyn whoever's coming from the citadel there's lots to do before she even thinks of coming west and then yes i think we are all hoping that that does happen in this book she finally does at least start the journey that's definitely what I'm putting my money on, that she will start, because I think there's plenty to do in Essos before she even gets to Westeros. There's Volantis still, maybe going to Bravos. That's all huge. That's going to take so much time. Yes, again, we forgot Mokoro again, didn't we? So much to do for her. And then will she get to Westeros, get to King's Landing, or perhaps even Dragonstone, start learning about Aegon. And then we've got that whole Dance of the Dragons to revisit again. So that's all our POVs there that we didn't get to cover in these preview chapters. And that sounds like a lot, but there's so much I didn't even get to mention. Different plot points, different characters who aren't POVs, different areas of interest, right from the wall and the wildlings and everything going up there with Stannis, etc. Right down to the tip of Dawn, 
and all across the Vessos, there is so, so much to cover in this book. And again, like I say, we really haven't even started, have we? Even with these preview chapters that are wonderful, wonderful to look at, and we've had a really good time doing so, we've barely even got to the start line. So it's very, very exciting. I'm sure you're all just as hungry as I and can't wait to actually get started. That's a wonderful feeling for us all to share. And I'd like to thank you all for sharing the journey through these preview chapters. It has been a lot of fun. This is where I'll leave you for now. I think your head is probably spinning like mine of all these things that we do have to think about from Winds of Winter. I'll give you one more thank you and I'll remind you that don't worry, even though Scraps and Scrolls has finished this particular part of the journey, we have more to go just yet. As I said at the beginning, yes, circumstances are changing a little bit, so look out for a change in schedule or how regular the episodes are but it'll all settle eventually, don't worry. The most regular update you'll be getting from us is the 100 question episodes. So keep your eyes out for that. Keep sending your questions in, keep sending your answers in. We do so love to hear from you. There's new things coming to the Patreon if you'd like to have a look at that. I do have some ideas for specialist episodes, some zoning in on particular areas or plot points or whatever might take my fancy. I'd love some suggestions on that as well or requests if you have any. Then we will have scraps and screens and we will have more scraps and scrolls because lucky old us, there is more material to cover yet. So we will be back, don't you worry. The next episode to look for is part four of the 100 questions on the winds of winter. And just to give you a little preview, we'll be answering questions about what Craster is up to and the effect that might have in winds or the repercussions we might meet in this book. As I mentioned earlier, we're going to be talking some Sorella, some Dark Star. There'll also be some talk about John Connington, who I've now just realised is a POV that we haven't had a preview chapter four. I knew I'd missed one. There he is, John Connington. Well, you know what's coming with him. I don't need to fill you in there. See, I did know I'd missed one. Shame on you for not telling me earlier. Never mind. We got there in the end. We remember. There's probably another one out there. But we'll be talking about him. So luckily that's covered. There'll be some talk about Aya's list and who might die next and much, much more. So make sure you tune in for that as well. Again, I give you my extreme thanks. I do encourage you to come along, have a look at the Patreon or subscribe on YouTube or Podbean or wherever you're looking. It does really help us out and we'd love to keep producing the content that we do. Thank you one and all and we will see you again on the aisle next time.